two objections to the rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. You are listening to this for the first time on Sunday, September 24th um, at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's going to be rebroadcast on Monday, September 25th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, We're recording on Saturday, September the 23rd. So this is our first show of autumn. Um, My name is Jasmine, and I'm here with Janet. Hi, Janet. How's it going? Hi there, and happy fall, y'all, as I learned how to say in in the South during my grad school time. Oh, yeah, we were way down in Florida. Mm -hmm. Where they don't have as many deciduous trees, and instead they just get plastic colored leaves and put them on their door with a sign happy fall (laughs) y'all oh man that's kind of a little awkward it's like the palm trees and they import pumpkins and i don't know forcing a season that doesn't exist in your home is a little strange to me but i'm glad to be back up in the north where it's a real true happy fall to use all (laughs) yeah (laughs) I like fall. I can't say there's not a season that I really dislike. I mean, I don't like being cold. I prefer a hot day to a cold one, but they all have something to look forward to. And I I like being in a place that has real seasons that change naturally and not artificially. Me too. It gives you appreciation for time passing and just for the subtlety of each season. Yeah, for sure. So on this week's episode, we're going to have a local story that's, um, it's a Jersey story about a New Jersey senator that's been indicted for, um, on corruption charges. For National News, we'll be talking about the really messed up rise in child labor in the United States and especially in dangerous um, industries like meatpacking. And for the world news, we'll be discussing the horrendous floods that have hit Libya. Uh, so I will be up first with the local news story, which I sometimes you got to laugh to keep from crying. But this thing was so cartoonishly bad. I just I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit. Uh, so this information comes from Hellgate NYC, which is sort of a muckrake type news outlet like they tend to have um, a little bit of bite to the way they write things Uh, the title of the article is who hasn't hid money in their suits and googled how much a gold brick is worth while also being a u.s senator from new jersey written by max rivlin nadler and this came out on september the 22nd i'm gonna read most of it but skip some things for the sake of time uh, but feel free to read the full thing on your own uh, so Robert Menendez is, a, is the senior senator from New Jersey. The U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York is indicting Menendez and his wife, Nadine, for allegedly accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes in exchange for helping a group of New Jersey businessmen who were deeply tied to the Egyptian government. And as an aside, uh, he was also indicted in 2015 for conspiracy, bribery, and honest services fraud. Uh, So he's no stranger to, you know, being caught up with these types of things. In a statement defending his alleged actions, Menendez all but stated there was a conspiracy against him, saying that for years, 
forces behind the scenes have repeatedly attempted to silence my voice and dig my political grave. He then went on to portray himself as an adversary against totalitarians the world over. I have also stood steadfast against dictators around the globe, whether they be in Iran, Cuba, Turkey, or elsewhere, fighting against the forces of appeasement and standing with those who stand for freedom and democracy, he said conveniently leaving out the extremely undemocratic country he's alleged to have done the bidding of, Egypt. Whether Menendez will resign or be forced out of office will play out over the next few months, although given that he's previously been indicted, tried, and walked free, he has no reason to go anywhere. But for now, at least we have this glorious, glorious indictment, which includes gold bars, dumb code names, alleged wife crimes, and emojis in reaction to million-dollar weapons deals for countries perpetrating human rights abuses. Here are the, hell yes, New Jersey, you've done it again, details from the indictment. During a June 2022 raid at the Menendez home, federal agents found $480,000 in cash stuffed into envelopes and hidden in clothing including jackets bearing Menendez's name. The agents claim that the fingerprints and possibly the DNA of Fred Daibs, a New Jersey real estate developer with ties to the Egyptian regime, were found on the money as well. And then they, you see the photos, and trust me, they look ridiculous, gaudy and ridiculous. In addition to the money, investigators found a car furnished by one of the New Jersey businessmen and well and as well as over $100,000 worth of gold bars in the home. Menendez, after receiving the gold bars, actually went and Googled how much a gold bar was worth. And the author says, incognito mode, people, it's not just for paywalls. Almost immediately after Nadine Menendez began dating the senator in 2018, she also began to connect Menendez with New Jersey businessmen who were also doing business with the government of Egypt. Why? Well, the indictment alleges that Menendez, as the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Commission, held approval power over large pots of U.S. aid money for Egypt's military, aid money that had been held up as some elected officials raised concerns about human rights abuses in Egypt. But with Menendez being showered in gifts and a promise of a no-show job for Nadine, Menendez began letting money to Egypt flow. In one intercepted text message, Menendez wrote to his wife to let the Egyptian businessman know that he had approved the arms sales. Nadine then forwarded that message to an Egyptian government official who responded with an emoji. Nadine Menendez formed a company with the very funny name Strategic International Business Consultants with the alleged express purpose of funneling bribes to the senator. In exchange for payments to her company, the indictment states that the senator lobbied the USDA against investigating an Egyptian monopoly that was the source of all Egyptian halal imports from the United States. After Nadine got into a car accident, the senator allegedly interfered with prosecutors pursuing state charges against a friend of one of the New Jersey businessmen being prosecuted for insurance fraud in exchange for a new car for Nadine. And this is from her text messages. 
All is great, all caps. I'm so excited to get a new car next week. Or a car next week. She didn't say new. Nadine texted one of the businessmen after Menendez made a few calls. Oh, God. This afternoon, Nadine... I'm sorry. This afternoon, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy called on Menendez to resign. Murphy clearly doesn't appreciate a man who just really, really loves his wife, the great country of Egypt, and delicious halal meat imported at great expense. But good Lord, I feel like this is something that you would see in like a Scorsese film. Oh my God. Yeah. And she's got the look for a Scorsese film too. The wife, Menendez. <laughs> I haven't seen a picture of her, but I've seen him everywhere. Yeah. They're, they're an interesting couple side by side. Um, but yeah, what a story. And I also had to chuckle as it came out. It's just, it's wild enough for film and nothing unexpected out of Jersey politics, sadly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not that New York doesn't have its own scandals, but it just was, I think I said to you before we started recording, I was thinking of like the Sopranos. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, my father's in like the garbage business. Like, oh yeah, like we're really into meat imports and exports. Like, and what do you mean by that? (laughs) In what way? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'm a businesswoman. Okay, what is the business? Well, actually, you know what's odd about all this, and I haven't seen it yet in an article, is like, how did this woman, Miss Menandas, like get involved with Egyptian officials in the first place? Like, they keep saying that's that she's the linchpin between her husband and the Egyptian officials, but like, she, you know, was out of work before she started dating him, and like, I, I. I don't know if you've read anything that kind of explained that point, but it's kind of mysterious to me. <laughs> it could have been a situation where she got involved with this person and because she was then in this position, like these guys could have approached her with like, hey, like we know you have this connection. Like if you do blah, 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 we'll do da, 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 da. And if she was down, like she just went for it. I mean, that's that's like my guess. Like they probably looked at who is in like this person in this position on this committee, who is in his circle that we can get to. Totally. And I think it could could have happened either as an initiative to them becoming in a relationship because they've only been together since 2018. So they could have even, you know, she the internet is full of possibilities. Maybe they reached out to her in one of these crazy uh, schemes and she took the bait and said, sure, you can pay me to seduce this politician and, you know, get him involved in, in activities in Egypt or something like that. I know that the one of there was a local New Jersey man who was Egyptian that was involved in this ring who's also being charged Um that had connections in the country of Egypt, um, but very interesting. And, and just, you know, parts of the story are so absurd. Like this article does a great job of highlighting, you know, the absurdity of emojis and some of the, the framing of her text messages just sounds so um, ridiculous. At one point, her husband told her not to 
blatantly text or email the Egyptians to tell them, coerce them to make a payment that she should call them at least. But obviously we now have that text message with him telling her not to do that. So even that was ridiculous of an idea. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Uh, and, and the, the article's title, you know, uh, the politician actually Googled after receiving these large pieces of gold, he Googled how much were they worth? And we know that he Googled that. So, you know, the government can see your text message, see your internet searches. So if you're a criminal, you know, maybe. And this is not the first time with this man. I was looking at past things. Uh, So this is at justice.gov. So this is 2015. So how many years ago is that? Eight. Um, Him and Salomon Melgan, a Florida ophthalmologist, speaking of Florida, they were indicted in a in connection with a bribery scheme in which Menendez accepted gifts from the ophthalmologist in order to use like in exchange for him using his office his Senate office to benefit Melgan's financial and personal interests. And he was also like doing wait, what else was he doing? According to allegations in the indictment between 20, 2006 and 2013, so for years. Yeah. He accepted close to a million in gifts and campaign contributions from the ophthalmologist so that um, in exchange for using his power as senator to influence the outcome of ongoing contractual and Medicare billing disputes worth tens of millions of dollars and also to support the visa applications of several of the ophthalmologist's girlfriends. Oh my God. This is re- so, so yeah. multiple women like being you know funny businesses happening like to get them up like oh my god i know and it's so ridiculous i i also think it's amusing and depressing how he like he just doubles down on the fact that it's a conspiracy against me like that's his quotes about this it's not like oops yeah you caught me red-handed with the gold bars in my hands he's like no i'm a i'm a servant of the people of New Jersey, <laughs> but maybe everybody in Jersey's, you know, politics is because <laughs> he said at one point in his quotes that he was conducting politics as normal. So maybe there is just such a, a scale of politics in Jersey that he didn't he didn't even realize he was out of the norm. Oh, my God. I mean, well, I do think that there's something to be said for the fact that when you allow this type of corruption to happen and there's no consequence, it does kind of ruin the standard, you know, because then people are like, well, so-and-so did this and it's worse. Why can't, what's the big deal that I did X, Y, and Z? Like he's a Democrat and there's a lot of pressure on him to resign now. But sometimes Mm -hmm. you see that type of logic where it's like, oh, but the Republicans are, they get away with murder all the time. And it's like, it's true, but it's also not the point. Like the fact that they're doing that is terrible and it undermines public trust. It undermines what you're doing. Not to mention like we're talking, it's not just these little favors. We're talking about weapons like being sent to who knows who's being killed by these things. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) This isn't all a funny story. This is very serious for Egypt. He's, it said that he disclosed the names and nationalities of U.S. Um, officials in Egypt 
So he gave them confidential information to the Egyptian government, you know, weapon exchange and this this control of the halal meat market, which wasn't even they said that the even though the name was halal, one article I read said that they hadn't previously been responsible for properly um, earning that title of halal meat. And they basically coerced the government to. Right. To not inspect it. Right. Yeah. And make it like there was no competition. And that's kind of what instigated the U.S. government getting involved because it started to make the meat industry prices change because only one company, the one, this halal company, which was being used to create funds to then um, pay off the politician in Jersey. Like, it's crazy. It's really crazy. <laughs> and Yeah, I mean, I think he should resign and, like, be replaced by someone who is not corrupt. But it also has implications for, like, the Democrats keeping, like, a Senate majority mm-hmm. in the near future. Like, the fact that you have something like this coming out. So, you know, we're laughing about some of the absurdity of it, but it has very real consequences here, abroad for the future you know these people are in a position where they're they can ruin lives with the games that they're playing like for short-term gains so i hope he finally is up out of the paint because this is ridiculous all right so you are listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and for our first musical break this is woke up this morning by alabama three also known as the sopranos theme song Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have our national news story. So for today's national news story, 
I'm going to be actually referencing back to a national news story from 1906, basically to Upton Sinclair's reporting on the meat industry in America, and then comparing this to a recent article that came out um, in the New York Times magazine called the, the Kids on the Night Shift by Hannah Dreyer, which was published on September 18th of this year. So just for a little bit of context, in 1906, Upton Sinclair published a series of chapters of a, um, a fiction novel in the socialist newspaper, Appeal to Reason. But this fictional novel was based on two months that he spent undercover in 1904 working in the meatpacking district in Chicago. And what he saw there was absolutely horrific. And um, his serial novel actually prompted the U.S. government to eventually pass the Federal Meat Inspection Act. Um, and so I'm just going to read uh, a, a little segment from chapter nine of this novel that describes the conditions that um, men in these factories endured back in 1904. There was another interesting set of statistics that a person might have gathered in Packingtown, those of the various afflictions of the workers. There were the men in the pickle rooms, for instance, where old Antanias had gotten his death. Scarce a one of these that had not some spot or horror on his person. Let a man so much as scrape his finger pushing a truck into the pickle rooms, and he might have a sword that would put him out of the world. All the joints in his fingers might be eaten by the acid one by one. Of the butchers and floormen, the beef boners and trimmers, and all those who used knives, you could scarcely find a person who had the use of his thumb. Time and time again, the base of it had been slashed till it was a mere lump of flesh against which the man pressed the knife to hold it. The hands of these men would be crisscrossed with cuts until you could no longer pretend to count them or to trace them. They would have no nails. They would have worn them off pulling hides. Their knuckles were swollen so that their fingers spread out like a fan. There were men who worked in the cooking rooms in the midst of steam and sickening odors by artificial light. In these rooms, the germs of tuberculosis might live for two years, but the supply was renewed every hour. There were the beef luggers who carried the 200-pound quarters into the refrigerator cars, a fearful kind of work that began at four in the morning and that wore out the most powerful of men in a few years. There were those who worked in the chilling rooms whose special disease was rheumatism. The time limit that a man could work in the chilling rooms was said to be five years. Some worked at the stamping machines and it was very seldom that one could work long there at the pace that was set and not give out and forget himself and have part of his hand chopped off. And so that's an excerpt of the kind of disgusting scene that Upton Sinclair witnessed and in the context of his book, a lot of the people working in these factories were um, Eastern Europeans at that time. And now I'll turn to a recent article that came out that um, sadly it focused also on immigrants coming to America with a lot of hope. And in this case from Central America, 
And the story focuses on a boy named Marcus Cooks, who as a mere 13 year old who had traveled to America alone without his parents began working a night shift in a meat packing industry. And at the age of 14, he actually had his arm maimed. So this is a bit graphic, but this is an excerpt of a description of what happened to him in 2022. When Marcos and the rest of the cleaning crew got there at midnight, the plant had a putrid smell workers sometimes felt they could taste. They sloshed through water, grease, and blood, which drained into a channel that snakes around the plant under grates. Marcos gathered up chicken pieces left by the day's shifts, working quickly because the whole facility had to be sanitized by 5 a.m. He took the covers off the channel and began using a pressurized hose to spray the machines down with 130-degree water. After he finished hosing down the machines, he started scrubbing blood and fat off the steel parts with chemicals that if they hit the skin, created welts that could take months to heal. Shortly after 2.30 a.m., he thought he saw a bit of torn rubber glove glove within the conveyor belt of the deboning area and reached in to grab it. Suddenly, the machine came to life. Across the factory, another worker had failed to see Marcos crouched with his left arm deep inside the assembly line and turned it on. The belt caught the sleeve of Marcos's baggy jacket and pulled him across the floor. Hard plastic teeth ripped through his muscle, tearing open his forearm down to the bone. By the time someone heard his screams and shut the power, his arm was limp, a deep triangular gash running down the length of it. A rope of white tendons hung from the elbow to his wrist, horrifying the workers who gathered around him. He understood from their faces that something was badly wrong, but he didn't feel any pain as the wound began gushing blood and as he lost consciousness. So that's a lot to take in because not only is this um, a horrific scene for anyone to experience in 2023, but this is a scene about a child. And as I read the story about Marcos, I just, the scenes and the imagery from Upton Sinclair's Jungle just came back to me, a book I read a long time ago. And it makes me wonder, like, what are we doing in America if the same passage nearly can be told over 100 years apart in this industry? It's like the more things change, the more they they stay the same. Because this, the package, the passage you read from the early 1900s, like, that could even, you know, if you take it further back to the times of slavery, you know, like legalized yeah. slavery, you know, you had people in the Caribbean and the Americas, like you would lose your arm, you know, dealing, like trying to cut cane and getting like producing sugar and things like that. People would just die. And it's like, oh, let's just import another one. You have exactly. coal miners dying, you know, black lung. It's like, oh, we'll just, we'll have a new batch anyway. Like there's no other jobs here. You know, what what's happening with the cobalt mining and things that you see in the Congo or people getting, what is it, uranium or whatever, like to produce goods. Those are also often young children. Exactly. It's like nothing is learned and 
you know, moves forward. It's just the same like nightmare being repeated over and over again. Well, Upton Sinclair, he really stresses, just like you're saying, how the human being in the capitalist system that we have is seen as expendable for tasks like this. And the most vulnerable people are the ones that are put into these positions. And just like in Upton Sinclair's novel, it emphasizes how hardworking and um, you know, optimistic the people start out. It really crushes their spirit. And this most recent article um, by Hannah Dreyer, she, she kind of emphasizes how does this system work where so many, because this boy is, he's one of many children that work in factories like this across America. And how does this system work in America and how is it sustained? Like, don't the adults in the community care? And basically she describes how, like so many others, Marcos came here. His parents are starving in Guatemala right now. They sold what they could to get him a voyage, you know, a, a way to get to America. He made it through the border on his own and was taken in by a distant relative of the family who was struggling herself and had her own children. And they moved to this place. Um, I don't think I mentioned that, but specifically the context of this story is a town called Acomac County in Virginia, where the town is completely dominated by a Purdue farm factory and a Tyson plant. Um, People live ironically, in a trailer park called Dreamland. And they're kind of completely dependent on this industry. That's what everybody in the community does. Um, There are a lot of immigrants there that are living many, many people in one small trailer, barely sustaining themselves. And um, the children are working because they have debts to pay from their journey to America or at the very least, they're sending home money as 13, 14, 15-year-old kids to their entire family in Guatemala or parts of Mexico. Um, And so the children want to work. Uh, The community sees why they want to work, and a lot of people turn a blind eye to it because uh, the kids need to survive. They don't have a source of income. They don't have adults taking care of them and their families are dependent on it. And so there's there's just a systemic um, network where people are turning a blind eye to children handling 130 degree powerful hoses, reaching their hand into cutting equipment and being exposed to really dangerous chemicals every night and then having to go to school in the morning. And it it, it breaks your heart reading a story like this. And it doesn't have to be this way. It's like, I look at all of the horrific things that they're doing with this artificial intelligence and it's all in the direction of like cheapening what the work that human beings do. It's like, why can't you come up with damn robots that can do this type of work? Where's the energy to come up with that? Why do you have to have human beings? No, especially not kids, but anyone. And it's funny, not funny, but it's, you know, poignant that you mentioned that too about the AI because you know the dialogue towards the end of the jungle and Upton Sinclair book um, 
you know, you get to dialogues between socialists about what to do, you know, basically with this crisis in America. And they too are saying, well, we have the science to make machines where the people don't need to be risking their lives to do this work. And surely we can come up with ways that, you know, science can save the day. But this book of 1906, you know, would be followed by something like John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, where you have all of the big machine equipment of farming that has been utilized and different equipment in factories now putting people out of work and, you know, basically doing everything to further enhance poverty instead of do what we had hoped it would do is provide enough food and, you know, eliminate some of the most dangerous jobs. So I hope that we don't see a replay of that with AI and the opportunities it could afford to helping people out of these bad jobs, but can't be optimistic based on the 20th century and how that played out. Yeah, and it's, it's ass backwards. You know, it's like you want to have robots creating art because you don't want to pay people right, properly, right. but then you <laughs> don't want to invest into not having people get maimed and killed doing these types of tasks like it and i i don't know how this uh discussion could get any more bleak except to end you know with the way the article ended where um what is marcos doing now as a 15 year old who's had three surgeries on his arm that haven't yet dist uh, restored its function um now he's been assigned to quote a job that even the most desperate migrants shunned. He's sifting through industrial, industrial chicken warehouses and pulling out the dead birds. Each day he passed through the entrances marked Purdue Family Farmer, put on two masks to guard against the overpowering smell of ammonia, and waited among thousands of chickens packed together in a windowless coop. His task was to search the ground carefully for carcasses amid layers of excrement as the birds pecked frantically as his, at his hands and feet. He started at 5 a.m. and removed 150 dead birds during each 12-hour shift. Quote, there are some dead birds that are good and rotten. They explode, he said. And so that's what he does now that he has um, an arm that doesn't work is he does a lower shift in an even more disgusting and, and grotesque condition. These people, you know, they don't have the visibility of other communities and, you know, especially children. Um, they're just so vulnerable and especially migrant children. And um, I think that the author of this article, I looked into her background a lot. She's done a lot of really great um, pieces and different uh, news outlets. Um, but she highlighted the fact that like her reporting, like Upton Sinclair, she was kind of undercover reporting on this. And when it was found out that she was doing this temporarily, they actually fired all the kids only to rehire them a few months later. So, you know, I'm sure for her that was heartbreaking, too, because she's exposing this to try to get them help get these kids into school and things like that. But it's a it's a really big mess. And Purdue and Tyson, these companies are not being held directly accountable because the children are hired by contractors 
And so, you know, there's this like they have a buffer for themselves, but um, it's appalling. And, you know, I hope we do better than the Upton Sinclair generation who merely, you know, he has this quote about how he tried to reach American hearts with his book and he merely reached their stomachs because the reaction was about making meat safer for people to eat rather than making the conditions safer for the workers. So I hope that the stories coming out about this boy at, at the very least, you know, appeal to our hearts of this generation and help us to come up with legislation that truly protects kids, not theoretically. Right. And it's also good that you mentioned earlier that it's a complicated web of conditions that create this problem. It is like a capitalist mess because with all the waste and stuff that just ends up being trash, like the way that these things are done, it's not necessary for it to be like that. It's because of profits. Exactly. So the greed of the few for the suffering of the many. Um, So you are listening to Objection to a Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World. We'll be right back. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for the world news story, uh, this article is from NBC News. Um, it was very lengthy, but I had to cut a number of the quotes for the sake of time. Uh, but the title of the article is, Why Was the Libya Flooding So Deadly? And it was written by Ziad Jaber, Mithil Agarwal, and Patrick Smith on September the 21st. The rain was getting heavier and heavier around midnight, but residents in the Wadi Derna Valley felt confident that the dams would hold as they had before. The two structures, Abu Mansur and Derna, just uphill from the Mediterranean coastal city, were meant to protect its almost 90,000 residents. The people were used to occasional flooding, and on September 10th, even, even rain heavy enough to fill the first dam did not sound the alarm. Residents recorded videos of the water level rising, then returned home to dry off and sleep as the night got darker and wetter. But it was soon clear that this was not just another downpour. Around 3 a.m., it was clear that both dams had given way as a second wave almost as high as the buildings in the neighborhood charged toward the residents who ran to take whatever high ground they could and grab neighboring families to escape with them. In a research paper published last year, hydrologist Abdelwaniz Ashur of Libya's Omar al-Mukhtar University warned the Derna area has a high potential for flood risk, citing five floods there since 1942 and calling for immediate maintenance steps for the dams. In the event of a big flood, the consequences will be disastrous for the residents of the valley and the city, he wrote in the Sebha University Journal of Pure and Applied Sciences. The dam suffered major damage in a strong storm that hit the region in 1986, and more than a decade later, a study commissioned by the government revealed cracks and fissures in their structures. Libya's general prosecutor, Al-Sadiq Al-Sur, said last week, but years went by as cautionary reports piled up and restoration efforts either failed to get off the ground or were abandoned in the chaos of civil war. The country plunged into a spiral of conflict and civil war after opposition fighters killed longtime dictator Muammar Gaddafi in a NATO-backed Arab Spring uprising in 2011. Divided between rival administrations and riven by corruption, the country's infrastructure and public services have been neglected. Derna is under the authority of the country's Eastern administration, controlled by the self-styled Libyan National Army of General Khalifa Hifter, while the country's West is ruled by the Government of National Unity, based in the capital, Tripoli. Most of the civilian infrastructure has been in a state of dilapidation since their construction. There wasn't regular, careful, and systematic management of the Libyan infrastructure. It's really been rot rotting, said Tarek Megarisi, a Libya expert and senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a think tank. Anger among residents fueled protests against local officials this week with the home of Derna's ousted mayor, Abdel Moneim Al-Ghati, 
being set on fire after hundreds of people gathered in the city, chanting slogans and demanding accountability. Authorities have been quick to respond, imposing a communications blackout and even ordering journalists to leave the area, calling it a necessary move for rescue operations. One source of that anger is a sense that warnings were missed, not just for years before the flood, but also in the days before the storm. A day before Storm Daniel hit Libya, Al Gadi said at a news conference that some areas surrounding the dam should be evacuated, but an emergency committee formed by the Eastern government's interior ministry instead imposed a curfew that was supposed to have lasted through the morning of September 11th. The confusion was a sign of the kind of chaotic governance and emergency response failure that global officials said was a crucial factor. Pateri Talas, the head of the World Meteorological Organization, said at a news conference last week that most of the human casualties could have been avoided had the local and national authorities issued the correct warnings and carried out evacuations. The fragmentation of the country's disaster management and disaster response mechanisms, as well as deteriorating infrastructure, exacerbated the enormity of the challenges. In countries like Libya, with no singular nationwide administration, where corruption is rife and public infrastructure is often an afterthought, efforts from prediction to prevention are made less reliable, analysts said. And all of it only highlights a glaring issue facing the world. The effects of climate change are making acute weather phenomena like Storm Daniel more frequent, placing additional stress on flawed structures and states. Timely prediction of the storm and a response like the swift opening of the dam gates might have helped prevent such a disaster, experts said. But failing to identify the threat to Derna, despite all the warnings, was the ultimate failing, said Nadir Al-Ansari, a professor of civil, environmental, and natural resources engineering at Lulea University of Technology in Sweden, who has been studying water resources in the Middle East for the past 40 years. The government should have examined the areas that could be flooded in case of failure. They shouldn't have allowed the building of houses in such areas. Nobody thought of this, he said. Uh, and from PBS, and uh, this is as of September 21st, so I'm sure the number has grown. Uh, but the World Health Organization says a total of 3,958 3, deaths have been registered in hospitals. But a previous death toll given by the head of Libya's Red Crescent said at least 11,300 were killed. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says at least 9,000 people are still missing. Um, so yeah, I thought that it was important to have some background as to why the flooding in Libya was so incredibly deadly. I know I was wondering about that. And, you know, it, it would be horrible no matter what the circumstances, but I think when you know that something could have been done in advance and that these things were predicted and the warnings were not heeded, it makes it 
just so much more heartbreaking because it highlights just it wasn't necessary like this did not need to happen like I can't even the numbers of people just being swept away I can't even put my mind around like that many people just gone in a flash no you're absolutely right I don't I'm I think um people are grieving right now but with the the awareness of the vulnerability of the dams and the warnings that were given by multiple people, engineers, um, about the danger of the coming rains and the need for evacuation, I think grief is turning to outrage. And um, I don't know what crueler example you could have where your politics are so corrupt that the people become... Um, completely disposable in this way where no safety precautions are taken to save lives and to avoid such a tragedy. Right. And like here um, in New York, it seems like it's not too bad right now, but we had an emergency weather alert about um, it being dangerous to travel, like with all of the rain and everything. And one of the headlines I saw pop up recently was about uh, when we had previous bad flooding, there were so many people in basement apartments that were killed. Yeah, yeah. that was right here in Queens, too. Right, and, a lot of apartments like that in Queens. And it's another, you know, for our own context, it's we have a known housing crisis. We have uh basements that are not approved to be livable spaces, but yet since the government can't figure out a way to open empty buildings to housing and make uh, housing affordable in this city, you have lots of people that um, are renting and living in underground apartments throughout the city with also known um drainage limitations that are from a different era that are not maintained and that are at risk of flooding. And then you have climate change with more rain happening in different parts of the world. So, um, you know, Libya is a very extreme tragedy and example, but we had our own smaller tragedy last year with the flooding rains and several lives were lost um, in an avoidable storm here too. Right. And I, you know, I always think of like Hurricane Katrina and there were, you know, there's people that are in prison now, like for corruption and stuff that were not doing what they were supposed to do at that point. People mm -hmm. that were getting money for release, relief efforts, but they were pocketing it. Like we had the local news story earlier and it was so, it was like cartoonishly bad, like what that man was doing. But the issue of like, political figures like these officials being corrupt and funneling money where it's not supposed to go it's not really a joke and like this is an example of like what happens when it does go all the way up to the max but it's in our own backyard right now like we don't have the best infrastructure throughout this country we have things that are outdated that don't really work how they should I mean I know I, I curse out the MTA all the time and it it's like a minor annoyance or something that aggravates you until something serious happens. And then you see. And there was 
not on the scale of of the Syria and Turkey earthquake, but um, in Florida, there was a building that was similar to other buildings in Florida built by the same company that was not structurally sound, not approved, and it collapsed. I don't know if that was two or three years ago, killed many, many people. And, you know, it was the same kind of oversight on the integrity of the building, not having strict building codes. And Florida is lucky they're not in a earthquake region. (laughs) Of course, they are in a hurricane region, but all of these things like the corruption of politics, lack of oversight on building, climate change, you know, it's all coming together for catastrophe in many parts of the world. I'm looking on CNN right now. They have a list of the top 10 deadliest floods in Africa since 1900. And with the death toll of 3,958, that's the largest number since 1900. The closest one was um, nearly 100 years ago in Algeria was um, at 3,000. So this is almost 1,000 more people dead uh, 100 years later. So that gives you an idea of like how abnormal this is. And, you know. Absolutely. And of course, the the lives of the people are the first matter and the first concern and mourning. Um, but the city of Derna was also, um, you know, it was a cultural heritage site for Libya. Um, there were church right. mosques and, and historic buildings there and even ancient Greek archaeology there and um it was a a city of um kind of intellectuals and poetry and theater and kind of you know a real cultural center for libya and it kind of reminded me of the lahaina fires in hawaii where um you know it's 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 so much that's lost with these disasters for the community Right, absolutely. And, you know, one of my, uh, one of the writers that I follow who writes a lot about climate change, I think I've mentioned her before, Kendra Pierre-Louis, she was saying like, and she might be leaving Twitter, but one of the things she was saying was like, if you don't take anything else away from what I've written all these years, it's one of them was that climate change is an actionable issue. Because yes, like some of this is like, this was a natural disaster in one sense, but also don't give in so easily to the idea that like, oh, these things are inevitable and there's nothing that can be done. It's not true, especially if you're thinking in terms of how to preserve life. There is technology and knowledge and people with the foresight to know, like, if you reinforce this, if you build with this type of material, if you evacuate people at this point and not at this point, that can save lives. We're not powerless as human beings to just kind of let things happen. They were told this, you should have evacuated, but instead the people were kept under a curfew. Like, what is that going to do, you know? And so all these people are gone for, you know, lack of appropriate direction and leadership. And I I think it's important not to lose sight of that, whether it's with COVID, natural disasters, like a lot of these other things. 
we're not powerless. Like we do have the knowledge and the ability, but it's often like the people that are in charge not making the right decisions because of self-interest. So this has been another episode of Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. And Janet, you're like a... You know stuff about Rome, ancient Rome and all that. Do you know where the dog days of summer comes from? Um, I do know that there was the dog star that would rise in the summer months that was associated with the time when people would especially get malaria. Um, so it, I would guess maybe it has something to do with that. This, you know, Sirius, the dog star. So they say back in the day, the ancient Greeks and Romans, they kept track of the seasons by looking at the sky. And the Romans referred to the period um, when Sirius appeared in the sky just before the sun near the end of July that marked the beginning of the very hottest days of the year. The Romans called that time Dias Canicularis, or Days of the Dog Star, which eventually became just the dog days. Now that we're in the fall, we're long past the dog days of summer. And for our last song, this is Florence and the Machine with The Dog Days Are Over. Have a good rest of your week, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Happiness hit like a train on a Oh, uh-huh.